This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Okay, everybody, welcome, and uh, welcome to a very unique and special event, and uh, one which has really excited the fuck out of me uh, <laughs> all week. I mean, I'd, I'd, I was doing a talk earlier in here about a, a national uh, literature identity, and I was doing a, a, a talk last night on my own uh, novel, and uh, I just couldn't be fucking arsed with either of them. Thinking about this, like, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're all excited, as, as excited as I am, I can tell, so we'll get straight to it. A couple of little things I must say first is that Niall's going to be signing, signing some books. Uh, I think there's a limited stock of the books. There's only about 80 left. Uh, and if you, So if you've got new books, if you want to buy a book, you go in a separate queue to get it signed. And if, you go, if, you, if you've got old stuff that you want, like kind of record covers and memorabilia that you've bought along and you want them to sign, you go into another separate... Uh, two separate lines, so it'll be two separate lines. Make sure you get into the right fucking line, because it's going to be a nightmare <laughs> logistically for us uh, if we don't. We've got homes to go to, you know, you might kind of... Uh, so, yeah, um, this is like... Uh, this, is, this is the book, uh, and it's a story of um, one of the most kind of uh, varied and illustrious careers in music that you could actually kind of uh, comprehend. And... Uh, what we're going to do first, actually, I'm going to be thinking that uh, we've got a kind of, probably got a, a rough split between musos. Uh, um, probably musos like, uh, probably a lot of star fuckers that want to know about Bowie and Madonna. <laughs> the musos that want to know about Sheik, the star fuckers that want to know about Bowie and Madonna. And the usual sleazy crowd that want to know about drugs and stuff like that. So, <laughs> I mean, we'll try to guide like them us. all. Well, yeah, guys like us. <laughs> <laughs> We'll try to we'll try to accommodate them all, you know. And uh, what what we're going what I'll do is uh, uh, I want to just ask, chat to Niall about various kind of parts in the book, and um, you know we'll have a wee blather about the book and about some of the incidents and some of the things and some of the happenings that uh, I found really interesting and amusing, and uh, I'm sure you will too. And you can you know maybe you can you know talk us more, more talk us through more some, uh, on some of these points. Um, but I mean, I was going to, when I was going to introduce Niall, I was going to say like, uh, I don't know whether to say kind of, um, I wanted to keep it short, I was going to say like legend, and then I was going to say genius. And I thought, well, kind of, um, he's kind of a bit of both, because he's like, you know, he's like a legend as a performer, and uh, a genius as a producer, and an enabler of other people's kind of finest moments. Uh, so in a way, as both a performer, you know, he's, he's redefined, He's been one of the people in this kind of uh, the whole history of music and the whole Panathian of popular music, who's redefined what uh, a recording artist is. You know, it's like both in terms of a performer with his own material, and also in terms of a, of a producer of other people's material. And that weird kind of kind of place in the middle where you've interfaced with these different artists. Um, and so I, I want to try and get, you know, to try and just roughly go through part, sections of the book that have, uh, that have been interesting to me and uh, to try and get a whole picture of this kind of, uh, a very kind of, you know, varied and kind of incredible career. So with your permission, um, I'm going to kind of start at the start and uh, one of the things that's kind of, um, you, you kind of, you, 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 you write, Quite evocatively about growing up in this household of uh, you, uh, like a mum and dad both using heroin, and you kind of um, you kind of sort of uh, sort of grew up in that environment. And uh, when I read through the book, I thought there's every other drug he's used except heroin. What the fuck's wrong with heroin? <laughs> <laughs> I had to rebel. <laughs> It's the truth. <laughs> uh, I, I, my, my parents were so um, unusually fantastic. They were really, really hip. How do you have parents hipper than... My, my, my folks were really hip. Uh, you think 
They, it was, they were an interracial couple. My dad was white. My, not my biological father, obviously. But my, my stepfather, who raised me, was white. And um, my mom was black. And they got married in 1959. And that was progressive and hip. And they were, they were both junkies. And that was progressive and hip because... <laughs> We, li we lived in Greenwich Village, which is where all the jazz musicians live. Matter of fact, there's one part of the book where Thelonious Monk, Thelonious Monk comes to my house and buys my mother's fur coat to sell to give to his girlfriend. Now, I don't think Monk was a drug addict, but everybody else was. So he knew he could get the stuff from them cheap. And, uh, and that's what he did. So, um, you know, when I uh, became of age, I wanted to try and out-hit my parents, which was impossible. But the, I did the one drug that I knew my mom and dad wouldn't do, which were hallucinogenic drugs. So maybe glue, glue first. You no, of course. Glue, like, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I mean, like, let's. He, he's re he's really right. It's not like I woke up one day and said, "Yeah, I'm gonna really outhit my parents and I'm gonna drop acid." In fact, I didn't even know what the hell I was doing the day that I took acid. But I was um, uh, a, a glue sniffer, and I even called myself a connoisseur because <laughs> because. Um, when it came to glue, you had to know exactly which brand was the best, right? You know, because of the efficacy. You wanted the best quality. And, um, you know, it was like, nah, we don't, we don't do Ravel. We only do testers, you know. It was like, we're like, hey, yes, my dear fellow, yes, I'll have a little testers now. So, um, um, yeah, we, we um, you know, the, ver the very, very first time I ever, ever got drunk or got high or anything like that, I went to the extreme, so I probably should have known that I was destined to become an addict. I didn't think of it at, at the time. Uh, I just was having fun with my friends. But the first time I sniffed glue, I was with this kid, Ralph. And you know, part of the, part of the fun or the excitement of doing drugs is the ritual, and you have to learn the ritual. And so he did the whole thing with putting the glue around the bag and making sure that it's, it's covered evenly and all that sort of thing. And then you breathe into the bag and you watch it blow up and expand and contract. And I remember this. My friend Ralph said to me, now the one thing you have to remember is when you can't feel the bag on your face, that's when you have to stop. <laughs> and that was the last conscious thought I had before I, I passed out. And I kept thinking, I haven't been able to feel the bag for about five minutes now. <laughs> and I don't know if you ever saw the film Clockwork Orange, a Clockwork Orange where the guy, his, plate, his face goes into places of spaghetti. That's what happened to me. I, <clears throat> glue, when I finally came to, was all over my face. The bag was stuck to me. So, um, yeah, I... Um, you know, my, my family wouldn't do glue either, so I did try and out-hip them on that level. Well, one of the things that um, is interesting about your family, the center of, you know, you, you lived in uh, like very poor circumstances, very kind of working class background, but one, one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was that the way you kind of just would kind of go from New York to LA and back again, and, and fuck everything else in between. We'll just go <laughs> to the two places where everything's happening in America. and. Uh, on the Greyhound bus and, you know, 3,000 miles away west and then kind of decanting there and then going back kind of as if it was just the next street, basically. There doesn't seem to be any real kind of, um, you know, it's like, you know, I'm just thinking about in terms of sort of um, growing up roughly in the same era and living in Leith, that if you moved, to, if, you moved if you met somebody from the next street, that was a fucking big deal, like, you know? <laughs> but uh, 3,000 miles is kind of, is pretty cool, like. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it's great that you point that out. I mean... Look, we, we had a destination. It's not like we, we were making our way across the country. It's just that we were very poor, and that was the cheapest way to travel, so we went by bus. Um, the stops in between, you just get off the bus and, you know, and get some food and get back on. Um, so the, the rest of the country wasn't interesting. It was just New York <laughs> and America. And, the, and what was funny is that when we got to Los Angeles, I don't know if anybody's been to Los Angeles, but downtown Los Angeles looks a lot like downtown New York. I mean, it's, it, uh, so when we got there, the first time I traveled there, I, I actually thought, that we just were driving around. <laughs> I was very young. I was six years old. I thought we were just driving around. And we wound up back. I was like, thought we were coming to California. And it didn't take long before I realized, in my mind, I thought, well, all major cities look like New York. It was, uh, 
it was just, it was strange. You know, you see pictures of Chicago and they always just show the tall buildings. So downtown LA looked like New York, but that's where the resemblance stops. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. it's just that little bit. And the next thing you know, um, it's very heavily uh, Mexican influenced. Um, you know, in, in New York, when I was young, uh, I remember seeing the movie West Side Story and it was, you know, Puerto Ricans. It was the Sharks against the Jets. It was the, the Puerto Ricans against the Italians. And, uh, th and, and even though the Puerto Ricans spoke Spanish in Los Angeles, the Mexicans spoke Spanish. But in, in New York, there was nothing in our culture that was named after Puerto Rican people. But you go to Los Angeles and there were things, you know, Santa Ana, Figueroa, blah, blah, blah. So the Mexican culture was very, very much a part of California. And that's the thing that I noticed as a child right away, driving on the highway, seeing all of these signs in, in a foreign language. It's, it's a really unique experience as a child. Yeah. Um, do you think, how, I mean, one of the things that you, you talked about in the book was navigating LA and uh, you were used to like the subway in New York, which took you everywhere and you can, you can kind of get around New York pretty easily. But uh, you, were, you, were a kid, you were still a kid, you were, obviously weren't driving then. I mean, how did you get around LA? Yeah, I, I just took public transportation. I took the bus, and, um, and L.A. is like London in that it's a complicated city. New York is a grid, basically, you know, especially where I lived in Manhattan. It's just a grid, Fifth Avenue, Sixth Avenue, Fourth Avenue, and then First Street, Second Street, and they just intersect. Um, Los Angeles winds and has valleys and hills and lakes and streams and rivers. All man-made. No, I'm just kidding. But... Um, but so L.A. is a very strange place compared to New York. So I, uh, I took public transportation. And as a child, this was uh, completely acceptable. I, I find the modern world really strange because children today, um, when I look at my friends who, who all grew up with me and they grew up similar to me, and I watch them now being so overly protective, and I go, guys... You're the same guy that hitchhiked to Woodstock with me now. Like, I have a, an ex-girlfriend who lives in London, and, and the other day I got a tweet from her, and she says, oh, God, my daughter is now in love with a musician. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, she became a doctor, but, you know, she used to be in love with a musician, you know, like, but... Um, but everybody is so overly protective. I mean, um, I was telling the audience last night that all of the things that I've done, and I've, I've had a great career. I've worked with some amazing artists. So, I mean, literally, I've sold much more now um, th than $3 billion worth of music. That's, inc that's an incredible feat for a person like me. Eh? So that's a lot of music. Um, but my proudest achievement, maybe not my proudest, but really it ranks way up there, is when I was seven years old, I set the national truancy record um, for, for Catholic school in all of America. I was, I was number one. I was number Brilliant. one I mean, with a you bullet. Cut, you cut cell for second best me. Yeah, I was number one with a bullet at mm -hmm. seven years old. And, um, and, and I used to cut school and go to the movies, to what you call the cinema, and I loved it. It was, in L.A., we used to have the grindhouse format, which were minimum of three movies, but it was a very competitive field because it cost nothing to go to a grindhouse movie theater because it was in the worst neighborhood. So what they would do is they would show a double feature, which were current films, and then they would show older films that were just sort of not in the, you know, six months old or seven months old, and sometimes a year old, and foreign films, and we had no rating system. So any child could see any movie. So, I mean, I remember I was seven years old, and I'd see, you know, Fellini and Mondo Cane and stuff like that. I'd be sitting there, they'd go, Paolo, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and the subtitles across. Fabrizio, well, no, no. <laughs> Mamma mia, che successo. Well, well, and I'm sitting there, ah. But I loved it. It was just incredible. And I found that... Um, that the education I got from just watching adult films all day long, that I was much more sophisticated than the average. And now it's also because my parents were super intellectuals. People think that, that when you're uh, a functional, functioning heroin addict, 
that you just live for the drugs. Well, my family wound up becoming the type of people that spiraled downward and really did just live to get drugs. But at the beginning, my dad was fantastic. Most people, except for the inner circle, no one even knew he did drugs. He couldn't go to Brooks Brothers, and they knew he was a heroin addict, so he was very, he was highly functional, together, central casting, handsome, really smart, could remember long sequences of numbers, which is why he was a master check forger. Absolute <laughs> genius. He's an absolute genius. He can do magic tricks that would blow your mind because his memory was so <laughs> phenomenal. Um, and, and so for a long time, my life, my childhood was almost idyllic. It was great. Um, but then as my dad got worse and worse, so by the time I was eight years old, my dad was really in bad shape. And that was the very first time I saw a heroin overdose. I had heard about it a lot, but I had never seen it. And um, it was uh, Thanksgiving Day. And I came home from, uh, from playing with my friends. I was really excited because in America we have Thanksgiving. We eat the turkey and the whole big thing. is a great, great day to pig out. And, um, and I see them wheeling my dad out. And he was white, so he was blue. And he, and he was dead, basically. But they were keeping him alive with oxygen and the whole bit. And, I was, and it was the first time I ever saw a person dying or near death. And prior to that, we had heard, oh, well, last week so-and-so died. Oh, a few weeks ago so-and-so died. But this is the first time I saw it. I was only eight years old, and it was on Thanksgiving Day, and it was a holiday. And, um, and it sort of put my life in this weird pattern of Thanksgiving Day, which is normally very celebratory in America. But in my family, Thanksgiving Day is always bittersweet, something bad goes wrong because that's the time when my family gets together <laughs> and they can't help but fuck up. They just can't help it. It's in our DNA. It's like Thanksgiving Day, well, what's going to happen this year? You know? And it's like that to this very day because it's the, the day families get together in America. Well, you're talking about the DNA. I want to move on to the, the DHM and when um, Sheik, we're, you know, we're getting together and getting established in your, your, your songwriting partnership with Bernard Edwards. Um, <laughs> And you talk about the, the every song. It, what, you know, it wasn't enough for it to have uh, just just to kind of have that kind of that sparkle and sort of uh, that that um, you know that cohesiveness. It had to have what you called the DHM. Can you explain more about what the DHM was like? You know, how, it worked, how it worked between the pair of you when you got into this? Yeah. So when when we first started songwriting. Um, um, I'll try and do this quickly because I, I, last night I got into the whole thing, but but. Um, <laughs> When, when Chic developed, I had actually seen this band called Roxy Music in London. I was stranded in London for a few days waiting for the American Embassy to open. It was probably Thanksgiving. No. But um, I was waiting for the American Embassy to open because I had lost my passport and my wallet. Yeah, I, I couldn't prove who I was. Actually, I left this story out of the book. It was fuck, it's actually genius what happened. But anyway. But, um, so um, I was waiting around for the, passport, uh, for the embassy to open. And uh, my girlfriend at the time had a band called Roxy Music that she liked. I had never heard of Roxy Music. Up until then, I was really basically into funk and soul and jazz and Hendrix and what have you. And um, so we went to see Roxy Music. And they were playing at this joint called the Roxy Theater or the Roxy Pavilion or the Roxy something. And I was shocked. I had never seen a band that actually had the joint named after them. <laughs> I'm like, you guys must be amazing. I was like. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles at the Beatles Theater. It was like, you know, like, wow, this is cool. So um, I thought to myself, wow, there's a real reason why she's into these people. And then when I looked at the audience, so think about, you know, rock and roll. You guys are pretty smart. You've, you've seen how the rock and roll audience changed. But so I grew up as a hippie, and my parents were beatniks. And all of a sudden, we started to see glamour come into rock and roll and like people were like, oh, beautiful. It was like, wait a minute, we went there with our jeans and dirt and mud, like similar to me tonight. But the Roxy Music audience looked beautiful and they looked beautiful and Brian was like, oh, cool. And then, both Brians, they were, they were all cool. I was like, wow, I've never seen this before. And, um, and, and I was just sort of overwhelmed and their music just stuck in my head. And, and uh, I'm glad there are people who are around my age or close. 
You will always remember that going to concerts in the old days basically meant you were going to a show to hear music you never heard before. Concerts were new music. The band was either experimenting with some stuff that they were going to put on their next album, or they were playing the current album, which you didn't know yet because you had to hear enough singles to buy it, unless you were a super fan. So that's what a concert was. So to hear Roxy music was just like going to hear the Jackson 5 or anybody else for that matter. So when I heard this new music, it stuck into my head because the audience that heard new music in the old days was an open audience. They were there, they were there to, to make an effort, which is interesting because now, you know, you go to an audience, I mean, you go to a concert and play new music, what does the audience do? They go to the bathroom. And they, wait to, they wait till the songs come on that they know, and then they come out and start listening. And then the new song, poof, bathroom. Um, so, um, so I was one of those open individuals, and that music stuck in my head, and I needed to hear more. That's how we used to sell records. You needed to hear more. You ran to the store. I got to hear music. So I went to get this Roxy Music stuff, and I saw that they had three albums already. Like, how, did I, how had I never heard of them, but they had three albums? And then I noticed right away, I saw Amanda Lear. I was like, whoa, I know who she is. And they had, like, famous people, and they had playmates and models and all that on their cover. I was like, no wonder their audience looks cool. This is this, there's this new sophisto sexy glam thing happening in rock and roll. It's not just the working class hero, it's this other new thing. So we tried to make the black version of that. We tried to think of how do we do that. So we started to put together this unit which was called the Big Apple Band uh, because we were backing up a group called New York City that had this hit record called I'm Doing Fine Now. Some of you may know. I'm doing fine now, without you, baby. Oh, shit. Yeah, okay. All right, yeah. All right, so that was my band. <laughs> but we never got another hit record, so we broke up. They left me in London and went back home. Um, but we still kept the moniker of the Big Apple Band because after those guys couldn't make it, we still believed that we had enough talent to make it. I'm, I'm going to get to the DHM, believe me. I have not forgotten that. <laughs> anyway, I'm just trying to paint you the complete picture to show you why this was so important to us. So the audiences were getting more sophisticated. People were doing concept, like the Who, concept records. Everything was attached. Everything was a holistic, big picture. You just didn't make a record and throw it out there. You know, uh, it was now the age of the songwriter. The Beatles had changed everything. Prior, I mean, you know, Elvis didn't write anything. You know, just. But after the Beatles, you had to write the songs, and then, you know, in our age, we had to produce the songs. I happened to be the orchestrator, so we didn't need George Martin. I did that. So it was this holistic thing that I had to understand that we needed to understand or else how do you orchestrate? How do you do all these things that are an important component of these songs? They're not just these throwaway things. So anyway, the Big Apple Band, we embarked upon putting together our version of Roxy Music. We hired this drummer named Tony Thompson who had just quit LaBelle. Boom. He got the concept thing. You guys know LaBelle. You remember how funk fantasy fusion the outfits the whole bit? So we, we got Tony to join first. Then we found this piano player named Rob Sabino. And Rob Sabino was friends with this guy named Ace Fraley. And Ace Fraley was in a band called Kiss. Boom. He said, you guys got to come and see these guys. We said, sure. Now, Kiss didn't have a record deal. We went to see Kiss one night. And holy shit. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was like, wow. So talk about the whole concept thing, the concept of a holistic type of musical event. And so what happened, I'll never forget this, when I saw Roxy Music, I called Bernard up and I said, man, I have finally seen the future. This is what we have to do. And he's looking at the phone going, uh, what do you want to do, my man? I says, um, well, you know me, I'm the hippie guy. So I says, uh, we have to um, do a totally immersive artistic experience in music. He went, what the fuck? I said, no, no, seriously. I said, I just saw it. I just saw it. Roxy music. It's a totally immersive artistic experience in music. He said, what the fuck does that mean? I said, well, I'll tell you what the fuck that means. That means like when you go to a museum and you close the doors, regardless of what city you're in, that exhibit is what you are consumed with. If you're doing the King Tut 
exhibition. They close those doors. Bang, you're in ancient Egypt. I said, you know, if you go see Marlena Dietrich's outfit, they close the door, bang, you feel like, oh, you're on the set. I'm ready for my close-up, Mrs. DeMille, whatever. It's like, that's what we, that's what we have to do. It's got to be this whole thing. It cannot just be a fragment or throw something together that sounds cute. He didn't quite get it, but when we saw Kiss, <laughs> when he saw Kiss, and I'm sitting there with him, I'm looking at him going like, <laughs> people in the audience had you know their faces painted I'm like <laughs> that's what I'm saying uh, Kiss will you tell them it's a totally immersive artistic experience in music now that's probably not what they called it they just I don't know what the hell they called it so um, so once we committed to that concept every single thing that we did had to have that and 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 it didn't make any difference whether it was our own music or someone else's. Um, I tell a story in the book a little later uh, when, when I'm doing China Girl with David Bowie. And David had charged me to write, uh, to make his album a hit. Whoa. David Bowie was coming off of Scary Monsters before Let's Dance, <laughs> right? I'm like going, you know, this is after Disco Sucks. So I'm using David Bowie, and I can say this because he certainly knows it's true now. I'm using David Bowie to try and gain credibility so people would just think of me as a producer and not just a disco producer. Um, and David Bowie wanted a hit. <laughs> and it was perfect timing. And I remember when he gave me the song China Girl and said that it was a hit, and I was like, whoa, what is this song about? And I was listening to it, and I didn't know. And I, was I, I didn't know what he was talking about. But I was very clear of David's history. Now, let me explain my dilemma. David was now sober, clean and sober, so much so that he had the serenity prayer tattooed on his ankle where he could see it at all times, right? And it was like he, you know, God grant me the serenity. And I'm, like, I'm looking at him, and at this point, I am totally, yeah, I, I am not even thinking about quitting partying. Like, that is like, that's a that's an interplanetary, that's a totally immersive other kind of experience. <laughs> so I, when I saw this thing in, in Japanese, in um, Chinese characters on his leg, I said, David, what is that? He said, that's the serenity prayer. So uh, what I'm getting to is that I couldn't ask him about what I thought China Girl was about, because to me, China Girl was a song about speedballing. It was. <laughs> it was called China Girl. Now, in the black community, right, Skag or heroin or boy, boy, boy is what we call heroin. Girl is what we call coke. China girl made total sense to me. But because, but because he had this thing tattooed on his leg, I couldn't ask him about it. Because I felt like, you know, he was like, well, you know, one day at a time, God grant me the serenity. It's right here. I've got to remind myself. <laughs> so... Um, when I'm working on China Girl, I was trying to think, what the hell is this song about? And I didn't want to get David, I didn't want to make him feel uncomfortable because I know when, you know when my friends would come by, I could see David sort of recoiling a little bit because my friends were fucked. They were out. They were gone. And so, you know, like the China Girl has that little thing at the beginning, but that's not what the Iggy Pop version sounds like. It's all hard and it's an album cut and David had charged me to do a pop song, or not a pop, but a hit. And, uh, and that's a perfect example of DHM, because what I had to do is I had to create my own DHM because I felt so uncomfortable about questioning David. I created this reality, and it actually seems plausible. If you listen to the lyrics and you listen to my definition of what it is, it actually makes a lot of sense, because David is an intellectual fucking guy, and he knows how to talk and abstract terms and China girl would make sense. China being China white or boy girl being coke. Well, speedball, that's what the song is about. I get it. So I made up my own pop song and I made it so ironically pop that it would be on David Bowie's artistic level and it was just so perfect to me but I was terrified, man. I, <laughs> when I played that corny shit, I just thought, oh no, I'm going to get fired on the spot because right before that, we had already cut Let's Dance, right? So we already had this hip thing going and he gives me this wacky demo. And I hate to say it because probably a lot of you people love the Iggy Pop version, but don't re remember, I was charged to make a hit. 
So it was an album cut, which was not acceptable in the frame of mind that I was in. So I, came, I went home and I played this little thing and uh, the chord changes of China Girl resemble a, Chaka, a Rufus song called Sweet Thing, right? And, and I played it, I didn't know it until I started playing it. I went, wait a minute, what does this remind me of? And it reminds me of Ch uh, Rufus's Sweet Thing. Um, and I know I probably shouldn't jump to the guitar this quickly, but <laughs> this, uh, this will just no, give you... So I don't remember what key China Girl is in or Sweet Thing, but I'll just... So if, if China Girl went... If it did something like that, Sweet Thing went... Uh, and Sweet Thing would go... And I went, holy shit, the intro with the Sweet Thing went... Uh, sorry. I went. So I did this whole little thing, and I was. I, so I was all like, I was now like, I got it, I got it. It's the, it's the hardcore speedballing song. But what you do is you do this little cute pop thing, and with the stature and the coolness and the the hipness of Bowie, you got it made. So I went there timidly, and I played that. For David, and I thought he was going to say, Get the, what are you doing to my cool rock and roll song with Iggy Pop and blah, blah, blah? And to my surprise, David went, That's fucking genius. <laughs> now, I'll play that again. And I went, Because at that point, I had already explained to David about, not quite about DHM, but I had told him that that my formula for getting hit records is that I always started my song with a chorus. I always started my song with a hook. Chorus and hook are sort of interchangeable. And David said, well, I never start my songs with a hook. And I said, but, but you told me you wanted hits. So if you think about Let's Dance, the first words out of his mouth in Let's Dance, other than the ah, 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 is let's dance, <laughs> right? Every song I've ever written goes, we are family. Or, I'm serious. Every single song goes. The first words you hear are the hook of the song. Dance, 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 dance. Or everybody, everybody dance. dance. Clap your hand. One, two. Ah, freak out. Exactly. So, so no, all my shit. To everybody dance. Can you tell us everybody dance story? Because that was like. Um, that was kind of indicative of kind of Sheik's ascendancy, wasn't it? When you when you uh, when you played everybody dance and you it went into the club and you didn't know about it and you walked into the club, which you, which they didn't let you into at first. Right, right. Well, that was yeah. actually you. It, actually, you got a great mind. He's actually putting two stories together. It's like, yeah, man, come on now. <laughs> let's, let's get let's get through this bad boy. I'm mixing up the freak out Studio 54. Right, well. with, I'm, but, yeah, but you're I'm, right. But I'm, I'm remixing. I'm having yeah, a bit, I'm remixing the book here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. So yeah, we we went to when we first cut everybody dance. We actually didn't know that the friend of ours who took us into the studio had made it into two discs, two acetates, and was playing it at a studio, unbeknownst to us, for three weeks. And in just three weeks' time, it became the number one song in that club. And the other story that he's putting together, which is fantastic, you just, I love it, bro. You're the man. He's moving, man. And the other, the other story is um, after we had done that song, Everybody Dance, Grace Jones fell in love with it. She thought it was clever because Grace Jones, like Bowie, they're these next level thinkers. So they can do pop music and they can get hits, but it's never the average pop hit. I mean, think about it. Grace Jones, her songs, when they become hits, they're not just your average. You know, it's not like, uh, 
I'm not dissing the Spice Girls, but let's, <laughs> but, but let's diss the Spice Girls. You, you would never hear Grace Jones go, if you want to be my lover. You, you would never hear David Bowie go, if you want to be my lover. I mean, it's just like, so there's a level of pop, there's a level of pop culture and a level of, of it, it's almost disruptive. Their kinds, a Bowie pop hit record is disruptive. It's, it changes the charts. It's, it stands out. Yeah. A Grace Jones pop hit record stands out on the charts. That's what I've always, that, that's where I come from. My MO, I mean, if you look at the chord changes to Everybody Dance, I showed people the chord changes last night. They are the jazziest, freakiest, weirdest chords in a pop song. You can't, you can't even sing if you want to be my lover or whatever, you, you, over that kind of stuff. But you can sing doo-doo-doo. So, <laughs> um, so, um, so we, I, I came up with this, this way of, of making pop music but you could still walk down the street and hold your head up high. You didn't feel like a sellout. You didn't feel corny because you, I couldn't make Bowie feel corny. Actually, he wound up feeling a little guilty, but not corny. He never felt corny. Actually, when we got to like 11 million or something, Bowie selling 11 million records, that was unheard of. 10 million, 9 million, 5 million, 3 million was unheard of. So to sell 11 million records was just, just completely outrageous. Um, but anyway, the, the, the story um, of Le Freak was what happened is Grace Jones was in love with our song, Everybody Dance. And she figured that if kids could write something like that, what could they do for her? But she insisted, in order for us to understand who she was as an artist, we had to see her live show. Because that's Grace Jones. That's who she is. It's the live, it's the holistic. It's the big picture. So she invited us down to Studio 54. Um, and she told us, now we didn't meet her face to face, we only spoke to her on the phone. So we had never heard Grace Jones speak. We had never seen an interview or anything like that. Um, we just knew her records. And on her records, she just sounds like Grace Jones. Uh, odd, a little bit, but when she speaks, she goes, darling. Like a cross between Marlena Dietrich, Bella Lugosi, and it's, it's just weird. She's like, there is no one on earth like, so it's, I don't even, it's not even an accent, it's some affectation, it's some weird thing that she's created to be her, and it's now her. It's like she's, re, she's solidified it in her head. So she's, when she speaks, she goes, ah, Nair, I love you. So she says, this is what you do. You knock on the back door and you tell them that you're personal friends of Miss Grace Jones. We, we're new, like we have one album out. So we thought this was like the old rock and roll thing, you know, like Van Halen. Okay, I put the green M&Ms here and the brown m and We didn't know what it was, so we thought we had heard about all these weird things, you know. You know, like with Duran Duran, I hope I'm not giving a secret away, but when you call up for Simon Laban, you ask for the Marquis de Suede and all that kind of stuff. So we thought it was, we thought it was that kind of thing. So, so we knock on the back door of Studio 54, and uh, the guy opens the door. Yeah, where you at? We are personal friends <laughs> of Miss Grace Jones. And meanwhile, we're dressed in like, you know, payao, man, like, you know, Giorgio Armani, man, Terry Mugler, we like happening. I got like Maude Frazon black suede shoes with blue piping around. We're like the shit, man. We are personal friends of Miss Grace Jones. And the guy slams the door in our face and goes, man, oh, fuck off. <laughs> And we thought, wow, what did we do wrong? Did we... What? We're personal friends of Miss Grace Jones. Man, I'm going to fuck off. And then finally we, we said, no, 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 no. We're banging on the door, banging on the door. And he comes out and he's really pissed off. And he said, man, you don't get the fuck out of here. So we realized that it wasn't the act. We, maybe we got the accent wrong, so we just tried to explain to him like ourselves. No, no, seriously. Uh, Grace wants us to produce her next album. Now, if you put it in context, he, he was right. I mean, think about it. We're brand new. Nobody knows who we are. We have one album which has two hit songs on it, the second of which is Everybody Dance. You know, it's, we're not like tearing up the world yet. Um, so he told us to fuck off, and he was quite serious about it. So at, in those days, uh, music for us was 
as, as much important um, recreationally as it was our, our livelihood. I mean, we made our living playing music, but we also, it was our, it was our form of fun. We, we jammed for fun. Like, almost like when you guys were walking in here and I was like having a good time. Like mu playing music is fun to me. So we started jamming on this riff. We're going down, down. Oh, actually, I can play it now. Yay! I, I can actually do it instead of just saying it. We were going. We were going. And I was just jamming at first by myself, and Bernard heard me. Like, and we were just getting all into it, and we go. just into it going and then finally I started going aww because this is what the guy said he told us fuck off so we were just reliving it and we were going we were going aww fuck off <laughs> fuck studio 54 fuck off <laughs> aww fuck off fuck studio 54 fuck off <laughs> And we were so into it, we were going, if a cab driver cut you off, fuck off. <laughs> and if your mother says go to school, fuck off. <laughs> and we were so into it, it kept developing and developing and developing. We wrote a bridge, it was clever. And then finally Bernard said, in a way that Bernard, only Bernard, he was just phenomenal, I miss him so much. But Bernard looked at me and he went, my man, you know this shit is happening. <laughs> and I went, nah, we can't get fuck off on the radio, man. Wow. Uh, this was... This was... This was way before hip-hop. This was, this was 1977. Uh, no, actually, now it was finally 1978. But still, this is still a good two years before hip-hop. And, um, and Bernard was hell-bent. He was like, I'm telling you, this is happening. So we changed it from fuck off, fuck Studio 54 to freak off. And I just was not doing it for us. And we kept trying to force it. It didn't work. It didn't work. And then finally I was like, I went back into hippie mode. I went, oh, oh man. <laughs> you know, you know, nerd, man, you know, like when you drop a bad tab of acid, man, you know, like, and you like freak out? Like, why don't we call it freak out, man? Like, that would be like really cool. And of course, uh, it would be like a totally immersive artistic experience. <laughs> you know, like, like, like we can wear like paisley shirts, man, you know, like, you know, and like we can like, you get big bell bottoms, man, you know, like, like platforms, man, it'd be cool, man. We'd be like freaking out, man, you know, like, wow. And he looked at me and went, what the? And, and then, all, you know, Bernard was a totally straight brother. He came from down south, blah, blah, blah. He'd be the last guy in the world to take LSD. He had no idea what I was talking about. So instantly I caught the little bit of tension between us and I grabbed my black ID card out and went, Man, you know what I'm talking about, man. You know, when you see a girl, hot girl on the dance floor, she's all fly and shit, and she's dancing around, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, she's, and then you see her, and you, like, you freak out. You go crazy. You lose your mind. And Bernard went, wow, yeah. And my, <laughs> and, and my, and my kids are doing, you know, Bernard was married and had kids when we were teenagers. He was like, yeah, man, and my kids are doing this new dance, the freak. <laughs> Light bulb, this new dance is a freak. So talk about DHM once again. Yeah, perfect, yeah. perfect. They're doing this new dance called the freak. So we decided we were going to own this dance. One more thing, I must say a little backstory. Got to take a little sidebar. When we formed Chic, the concept behind Chic, remember this holistic thing, Roxy Music, all glamorous, beautiful, blah, 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 kiss, makeup, anonymity, the whole thing. We fused those two concepts together. And um, in, in, his, in historical terms, when black jazz musicians would become famous in America, because the racism was so severe, when those black jazz musicians would become famous, they would typically move to France. And that became a thing. You know, Nina Simone would move to France and blah, blah, blah. And they would have different lives in France. Oh, wait a minute. Oh. 
<laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's cool. I'm very accustomed to people walking out on my shows. <laughs> it's, it feels normal to me. Like, they're going, oh, fuck up. They're going to go write it. They're, they're going to go write a song now. <laughs> so, so typically, uh, black jazz musicians would move to France. So our big idea was, let's cut out the racist middleman. We're going to pretend to be from France, and we're going to come to America. That was our whole, that was our genius concept. Yeah. Nah, 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 we can't, because we had already been turned down to trying to get signed as a black rock and roll band. No, nah, no, nah, we can't have any black rock and roll bands around here. It's too hard to... Uh, we're from France. Oh, you're from France? Oh, well then. <laughs> oh, well then, let me hear that again. So our concept was we were French coming back to America. So we wrote this song, and we were going, ah, freak out. And then Bernard, with his genius, keeping it consistent with the DHM and the holistic concept, he went, well, instead of it calling it the, the Freak, let's make it our dance and call it Le Freak. Now, we had started this concept. We had patterned it after Chubby Checkers, Come On Baby, Let's Do the Twist. And in actuality, uh, in more precise terms, we were patterning it after a song by Joey D and the Starlighters called The Peppermint Twist. And um, if you listen to the lyrics of Joey D and the Starlighters, The Peppermint Twist, you got a new dance and it goes like this. They never ever tell you how to do it. They just say, all of this cool stuff, you know. You got a new dance. Ba, 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 ba. Well, the name of this dance is the Peppermint Twist. So our thing was, have you heard about the new dance? Crazy, listen to us. So instead of complaining about not getting in the Studio 54 and going, oh, fuck off, we went, oh, freak out. And Bernard, with a holistic concept, we're from France, went, le freak, c'est chic. Do you remember the first time you got back into Studio 54? We were the shit. Are yeah, you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. There is a record, like in my house, a gold record, which is actually platinum now, um, on the wall that says, A Night at Studio 54. Whose picture do you think is on the cover of that puppy? <laughs> and it what, went, what, it what was huge. Talk about about the, the, the whole disco sucks kind of backlash, uh, which kind of sort of, you know, Facilitated your moving from a performer into producer in some ways, and you know, in the way the, the trajectory of the book is. Uh, I mean, I, I was, you know, personally, I, I really fucking hated the, the whole disco sucks thing because it was like, um, a, you know, you couldn't conceive of any sort of um, any very conservative genre like kind of heavy metal or um, country. You couldn't conceive of having a country sucks or a sort of heavy metal sucks kind of thing. This kind of virulent campaign. It seemed to me to be sexist because it was like against women being on a discotheque dance floor, having a good time outside of that controlling kind of thing. Uh, it seemed to be racist. It seemed to be homophobic. Um, how did you feel about the, you know, the, well, correct. obviously, not, correct. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's the correct, but it's correct. I didn't realize it was kind of so devastating on, on disco. On the, on the whole kind of movement of disco and dance music at the time? It, for us, it was really devastating because um, I, I grew up as a rocker, a hippie, jazzer. I always looked at being part of the music business as being part of the counterculture, the, the, the people who gave a voice to the voiceless. Like if people were down, you know, I mean, you know, even, the folk, even folk music was all about the workers and you don't cross the picket lines and blah, 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 and all that. It was, you know, America and rock and roll um, had this sort of working class, almost socialistic kind of thing to it. So the fact that, that you could demonize an entire class of music was incredible to me, especially one that had been so profitable and had lined the record company's pockets. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were just coming up with one-hit wonders every day, and it was just like, wow, money, 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 just selling millions and millions of records. Even the big white rock and roll bands to compete had to do disco songs. People don't realize that the biggest record Rod Stewart ever had, the biggest single is Do You Think I'm Sexy? Sexy yeah. That's his biggest single. Queen's biggest single is Another One Bites, Bites the Dust. Dust. It's yeah. not Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody stayed at the charts the longest, but it did not sell the most singles. So that's the thing is that the Rolling Stones, biggest yeah. single is do -do 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 -do. That album sold more albums than they had ever sold in their lives. So, you know, these, al these artists that were big platinum rock and roll acts were not 
platinum rock and roll acts that sold 10 times platinum in five times. They just sold platinum. To this day, platinum. The Rolling Stones' biggest album, three million seller. Because I'm the Puerto Rican girls trying to meet you. That's the stuff. So when, uh, when this whole Disco Sucks thing happened, it didn't quite make sense because they were, everybody was doing it. As a matter of fact, I refuse to do Aretha Franklin's disco stuff. I refuse to do Frank's. I, every, I turned them all down because they kept asking me to do disco. This is before disco sucks. This was uh, when we were happening. I was like, no, I, I, I'm not doing that. It's, it's just not who I am. But, but anyway, um, when the disco sucks thing happened, which was the summer of 79, um, we, had, we had just put out a record called Good Times. And uh, Good Times went to number one, but it was an interesting number one because we actually didn't have any support from the record companies. We got it all from the people. The record companies were all supporting, even companies that didn't have anything to do with it, they were supporting a band called The Knack. And The Knack had a record called My Sharona, a pretty damn good ditty, right? It was a great song. The Knack is a one-hit wonder. They never had another hit record ever. But one year to the day after Good Times was number one, what was the number one record on the Billboard charts? Doo-doo-doom, doom-doom. Another one bites the dust. Doo-doo-doom, doom. It sounded very curiously like Good Times. It didn't sound anything like My Sharona. And then right after that was This is Radio Clash. Boom, boom. And all of these songs started going boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. You know, um, I mean, just there was like a slew of records. Matter of fact, even in our tour, we started going boom, 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 boom. And we segue from good times. Us is a hip hop, the hippie. But do do doom, doom, boom. Another one bites. And all we would do is just play the bass line. The audience would know right away. And they would go boom, 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 whop. Another one bites the dust. Boom, 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 boom. I'm serious. We go boom, boom, boom. And when they start singing, I need you. And it just, it was hysterical. Audience was crying. So they got the DHM. So um, I was one, I was one one to open it up to give people the chance in the last kind of 10 minutes or so. Wow, we only have 10 minutes? We'll be rocking. Can I just, can I only We're only at Disco Socks. Wait a minute. You said, you said, you said we were going to get to the star fuckers. There's yeah, only... Yeah, you, you snubbed us on me. Oh. You know, you get, but uh, can I just... Um, just wanted to ask one question about what interests me about the book. I mean, um, sort of... Uh, you know, all, all the, the imagery in the book, you got like kind of Bergman and all right, that. Right, yeah. And, you know, the Seven Seal and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But did you pick all these images yourself? Yeah, like, absolutely. What, well, what, the, what was the... Not, not, I didn't pick that particular one. Yeah. Um, because I actually wanted to get something else, but we couldn't clear it. Right. So they, right. they could so only yeah, clear that seven one. Seal. Right, do we have a microphone to, to go around? So anybody who wants to ask a question, please raise your hand. I mean... Uh, try not to, to try and keep them quite short so that other people get the opportunity as well. Well, Niall's so, answers are going to be so, long. So. Yeah, some, some right, some that, right that's right that's your problem. Somebody down here. Guy in the hat. Uh, hello, Niall. Uh, welcome to Edinburgh and thanks for coming. Uh, I just want to say, what's your most favourite song that you've ever uh, written? Or are they all just as good as each other? Uh, I'm not sure. Any particular song, what's your favourite song that you've actually written or performed that you really. Your, your personal favourite of the song? Personal favourite song. Um, I, it would have to be Good Times just because of the emotion attached to it. You know, just what I said, how we were able to fight the entire industry and the people made Good Times number one, not the record company. So that was really powerful. Anybody else? Some, somebody there on the front row guy with glasses there. Sorry. But... Hello, Niles. Hey, is that Alan? Sorry, uh, yeah. All right. I, 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 learned the, I learned the part, bro. Uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, what were we up to today? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Come on, real question. Not, not really. What, what were you doing today? Pardon me? What were you doing today? What, what were we up to? What, what was I doing with... Today. Today? Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, hanging with him quite a bit. Um, 
I uh, fooled around with some songs. I called my parent. Fooled, fooled singer. around with some songs. Pardon me? Fooled around with some songs. Yes, fooled what, around. New, new stuff or Nordic? Nah, nah, nah. Just, just jamming and I, stuff like that. I actually didn't know the format tonight because I never really prepare. So last night threw me off kilter. I thought, holy shit, we're going to wind up singing some other song. So I started learning Happy Man and all that kind of stuff. I was so shocked. Everybody's calling out tunes I haven't played in 30 years. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, so let's some, go far up, away. Yeah, can we go up to the top there, the guy in the white shirt? Yeah, and then that person back there after him. Yeah. Hi, Niall. Um, out of all the years you've been making music, do you have a favorite decade? Would it be the 70s? Um, actually, I think my favorite decade is the 80s because, it, you know, that's when I met Bowie, um, Madonna, Duran Duran, uh, NXS. My whole life changed. In, in the 70s, I was uh, cocky and confident. The disco sucks thing knocked me. It didn't knock me off my pedestal because we weren't, we weren't egotistical guys. We just knew what we knew the industry. So we thought. All of a sudden, we were blindsided and had to relearn everything from the ground up, but we believed in the artistic power of the music itself. So the 80s is probably the decade I love the best, and probably the, is the decade that I'd actually like to write about and talk about in the future, because it's sort of the missed decade in a way. I don't know why. It's not nearly as romantic as the 70s, but uh, the 80s I like the best. Also, we had the best drugs in the 80s. I had the most, I had the most money. Oh, go. Uh, <laughs> and there was a person over there. Yeah. Can we, can they, we, can uh, we struggle to get over yeah. to her in the back there? Way in the back? That'd be cool. I like people in the back. You know, we, we used to have to sit in the back of the bus in America, so we moved, we moved, to, we moved to France. <laughs> Thanks for noticing. <laughs> When you jammed with Hendrix, do you remember any of the songs you played? Oh, we didn't play a real song. It was freeform improvisation. <laughs> it, was, it was a freeform improvisational piece, you know, man. Like, what happened, this is a true story, we dropped Orange Acid. I did. I dropped Orange Acid. And my buddy wasn't there, so I took his. So I took, <laughs> took a full, like, Orange Acid was so powerful, you used to have to break it in half, but I took them both. Took both hits. And... Um, and we jammed. It was funny. In the book, I talk about jamming with Hendrix. Now, you got to, once again, I want to put it in context, and I'll try and do it quickly. Hendrix was building Electric Lady Studios in Greenwich Village. Electric Lady Studios was a, uh, a place called, Greenwich, uh, called Generation. It was a nightclub. We used to hang there all the time. It was not uncommon to see Jimi Hendrix in Greenwich Village. It was not uncommon for people to jam with him. It was a little uncommon for us, but he wasn't there to jam with us. He was jamming with other people. We happened to be jamming there. So we played this freeform composition of peace. And it was amazing because we all moved together like a, like a flock of birds. We just, it was perfect. It was this beautiful. <laughs> you already know what that means, right? <laughs> so it was this beautiful composition. It was just fantastic. We all ended together. It was a decrescendo as the sun came up under the door. <laughs> and we just stopped. And uh, what happened was the recording engineer was jamming with us, so he wasn't doing his job. He wasn't recording the music. <laughs> so at the end, I'll never forget this. It was fabulous, man. We hear Jimmy go, uh, uh, did anybody record that man? <laughs> and the engineer was standing next to me. I was like, uh, <laughs> I guess not. So uh, no, we didn't actually play a real song. That was a noted song. We were just making it up. We were improvising as we went along. Sorry. It was cool, though. <laughs> we got anybody else? Um, the guy in the middle there? Down there. Hello. Hey. Um, what changed for you personally, then? Because you've been talking about drugs. When you cleaned up. Pardon me? What changed for you personally when you cleaned up? Didn't use drugs anymore. Uh, what, what, what did yeah, I like? What, everything well, about your life. What did I produce? I'm not sure the, the well, question. Um, when, I, when I got sober, what did I do? You, yeah, yeah. How did it change your way of playing music it and was, things like that? It was fantastic. Uh, I tell the story in my book. We were, um, a good friend of ours had died, and the person who died, he actually dropped dead on the, on the dance floor of this nightclub that was actually pretty famous called Le Bar Bat. He was also French, Le Barbat. 
Um, and uh, the thing that was interesting about this, it was particularly sad because he didn't drink or do drugs or anything. He was totally straight, but he had a, a brain aneurysm. And he just literally just got weak and just bang, passed out dead on the floor. So we did his memorial at this nightclub. And that just happened to be right after I had gotten sober. It was the first time I held a guitar and played in front of people. And I was terrified because I had horrible stage fright. And the way that I got over stage fright is actually how I spiraled deeper into drug addiction. Because um, the very first sheet concert was in a disco in Atlantic City. The second sheet concert was at a big, gigantic baseball stadium with about 70,000 people. And I was shaking. And my roadie gave me a styrofoam cup filled with Heineken. And I just downed the whole thing. And I felt this warm wave go from my head down to my feet. And I turned around and went, Oakland! And the whole crowd went, chic! And we went, yeah! Dance, dance. And so anyway, um, so after we were playing my friend's memorial concert, um, I, was, I was terrified. All these thoughts were going through my head. Can I do this? Will I suck? So and so. We finished the first song, and it was brilliant and tight. We sounded just like Chic. It was amazing. And when the song ended, I just screamed out. Nobody knew what the hell I was talking about, because I didn't think I was worthy. I actually screamed out, I belong up here, because I was terrified. <laughs> I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't know what was going on. And, um, and at that moment, I felt so comfortable being sober, playing music, that uh, I wound up having yet another career after that. Um, and that's where I am now. I mean, if I weren't sober, I wouldn't have been able to write this book. And it's funny. When, when I met him earlier, I was like, oh, great. I got a real writer here. I'm going to ask him. Because this shit took me four years to write. It's like <laughs> the hardest thing I ever did. It was like the most single most daunting task ever. Right? My friend Caroline, she would come to my house and read. I want to hear the words aloud. And she's got an English accent, so it all sounded fantastic. <laughs> the scent of magnolias. You know, it was like, you know, like, wow, man. I'm like fucking Hemingway. Man. This is great. You know? this is, like, even today, she came by my room. And I was reading. And I was like, going, no, Caroline, you read it. It sounds, <laughs> sounds much better. So, um, so it was really daunting. I was so, it was really tough. So I asked him, I said, man, how long did it take you to write train spotting? And he goes, well, you know, I sort of had it all in my head. So it actually went rather quickly. I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping he would say, well, now, you know, I struggled over for six or seven years. Or I thought he was going to say, it took me a life. I said, don't say a lifetime. So he says, well, no, actually, I had it all in my head. So I just really, I said, you just transcribed your thoughts? So, um, you know, what happened, though, is that after that, I really got much more organized. And I was able to retain my thoughts. I was able to be become clear. And it all sort of, uh, life just fell together. And now the life that I have, to me, feels in a strange way, a little more rewarding than before. I actually have a, a great time now, well, as you can tell. Well, we've got one more at the very front. We've got room for one more question, then we'll have to, to wrap up, unfortunately. Gosh, time flies. Yes, it has, man. Hi, Niall. Um, a really obvious question to end with. Is there anybody yet that you haven't worked with that you want to? Somebody asked me a question sort of like that last night. And the great thing was that he said, from the past, present, or future. Um, so I can't really say that there's someone alive right now. Um, that's not to say that there aren't people that I love. I talked about my friend Janelle Monet a lot last night. Um, I'm, I'm working now currently with uh, this woman named Ellie Jackson. She's got a band called LaRue. She's, she's phenomenal. There are a lot of people I like now, um, but the truth is, is Miles Davis had asked me to write a pop song for him, like a hit. He didn't necessarily pop. He said a hit. He wanted a hit. But I thought that he was kidding because he was Miles Davis. I followed Miles all my life. Figured the last thing Miles wants is a hit record. But he used to say to me after we did a fashion shoot for Issey Miyake, um, we became good buddies and you know for the last few months of his life and we were out partying and hanging out and stuff like that and every night before the night would end he had inev he inevitably would look at me and say now 
write me a motherfucking good time. <laughs> <laughs> and I always thought it was a joke, because, you know, it's Miles Davis already. You know, it's, I mean, Miles, Miles, who changed my life over and over and over again. And he would always say, write me a motherfucking good time. So I'd write, I'd write some avant-garde hip jazz thing, and he'd always go, man, I can write that bullshit. Mar Marcus, Marcus can write that shit, man. Write me a motherfucking good times. And I, I st to this day, I don't really lament anything. My life is the way it is, and I'm fine with it. I'm very happy. That's the only thing that I'm sad about is that I did not listen to Miles and write motherfucking good times because I really could have written him a song that was worthy of Miles Davis and probably been a number one pop record because that's the one thing he never had in his life. You know, he never had a number one pop record. I had tons of them. Well, I'll tell you what, you've certainly shown us some good times here tonight. So I want everybody to put their hands together. A proper Edinburgh welcome. For More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.